I want each and every one of you to think about, consider the person in this world that you love the most, okay? Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's a specific child. Maybe it's your uncle or your aunt or your grandmother or grandfather. Now, consider them in this moment right now. What would you be willing to lose for them to have a better life? Would you be willing to lose all of your savings? Would you be willing to lose your job? Would you be willing to lose your house? Would you be willing to lose your position, your privileges, your comforts, your convenience? Would you be willing to lose everything so that that person whom you love would have a better life? See, Jesus in these parables, we're going to learn that he forsakes everything because of the love that he has for his people and not just because of the love that he has for his people but the value that he sees in his people which brings me to the title of this message the value of god's people the value of god's people we're going to talk about two parables um we got one more week of parables next week um We're just going to talk about two today. Three verses, actually. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 to 46. This is the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. See, both of these parables speak of God's people. The parable of the hidden treasure speaks specifically of Israel. And I'll get to that in a second, but God's people generally. Uh, the parable of the pearl of great price speaks of the church, okay? Now, many people read this parable. Let's read it. Verse 44, both of these parables, really, they're very similar. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So this man, he finds this treasure in a field. He sells all that he has for the treasure, to gain the treasure that he had hidden in this field. Now, many people, some, will teach these this parable and the next one uh, as if we're the man, the individual believer, and we've been searching the world, we've found this treasure, which, which is a picture of our salvation, and we forsook all, we sold everything that we had so that we could attain that treasure and salvation. Big problem there. Because salvation, we know in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, is a free gift from God. We don't work for it. Jesus didn't say, forsake all and you'll be saved. He did say, forsake all and follow me. But salvation is a free gift. He says, if you believe in the Son of Man, you'll be saved. So this parable, if you look at the context, the man is Jesus. Look at the last um, parable of the wheat and tares, Okay. Look at verse 24. It says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Look at verse 36 as Jesus explains this parable. parable. Actually, skip to verse 37. Jesus, as he's explaining this parable, just before he gets to the parable of the hidden treasure and pearl of great price, he says, he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. So in the very last parable that Jesus spoke about, he was the man in the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man. Jesus is the man. Same thing goes with this parable. Look, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. So Jesus in this parable is the man. The field is a picture of the world and the hidden treasure is a picture specifically of the nation of Israel. Generally, it parallels to God's people and we'll talk about both things. But let's first look at why this is the nation of Israel. I'll point you to two verses in Exodus chapter 19 verse 4. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, it says, 
I did sprints this morning up this hill. And I was breathing in the cold air and now it's like affecting my breathing. <laughs> Stop, okay? I mean, it was kind of cold to me. I'm sorry. I can't say cold anymore. I'm always judged. Verse four, I'm kidding. Verse four, it says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine. We see Jesus speaking of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and he calls them his special treasure above all peoples. Okay, look real quick at Psalm 135, verse 4. Just to warn you today, we got a lot of scripture. I know the text is only three verses, but we got a lot. Um, I think it's just important for us to go through these so we see uh, that what I'm communicating is not just my opinion of these parables, but when you compare scripture to scripture, um, I want the word of God to speak to you, not just my opinion. Psalm chapter 135. Psalm 135, just four, verse four, it says, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. Israel is God's chosen treasure. Israel is God's beloved chosen people. See, they didn't do anything to deserve God to choose them. God simply chose them because it was his choice. See, God claimed them before they ever claimed God. Make my first point. Treasure is found because it is chosen. Jesus finds this treasure because he chose it before the foundations of the earth. He finds it because he chose it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29, you can write it down. It talks about the people that God chooses. And he says, God chooses the foolish things of this world and the weak things and the abased and the despised. These are the categories of people God's chosen. God's chosen us not because we're great, but because we're his. We didn't do anything to deserve God choosing us just like the Jewish people. He simply chose us because we're his. And he found us because we're chosen. We didn't find ourselves. He found us. Many people will say, man, that's great. You found God. It's not true. You didn't find God. He found you. Jesus found you. He pursued you. You wouldn't find him unless he found you first. See, the Bible speaks clearly about our lostness in so many scriptures, but I want to look at a famous, um, powerful uh, prophecy concerning Christ. Speaks about us, Isaiah chapter 53. This is or was our condition. Verse 6 of Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, everyone. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're just lost sheep that have gone astray. We're just sheep without a shepherd. But what does Jesus do? What does the good shepherd do when he knows he has sheep that are lost? He seeks them and he finds them. It's Luke chapter 14 verse, sorry, Luke chapter 15, verse 4 and 5. Luke chapter 15, picking it up in verse 4, it says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he laid it on his shoulders rejoicing. This is a picture of Jesus. He leaves the 99 to seek and pursue the one that's lost, the one that realizes they've gone astray. And as Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray and we would all be lost. We would all be astray had not our good shepherd sought us out and found us. See, Jesus, 
He seeks us out. He diligently pursues us. And He will find us. Why? Because He chose us. Because He chose us before the foundations of the earth. See, Jesus was seeking this lost sheep for a long time. Now, speaking of myself. Now, I had so many different circumstances and situations near life or death situations really nearly died so many times from car accidents, drug overdoses, you name it. And you know what I used to think? I used to think I was a cat, that I had nine lives. I was like, man, there's nothing that can stop me. I just won't die. And I even kind of wanted to die, but I wouldn't die. I'm like a cat. You're not like a cat. There's nothing that you did. You're a lost sheep. God has just been protecting you that whole time because he chose you. And it was just a matter of time before you responded to his seeking of you. See, before I responded to God seeking out and finding me, I was really useless. See, we're pretty much as good as nothing until God seeks us out and finds us. And when he finds us, that's when we're given our value. See, he knew we had value all the time, but we're pretty much useless until he finds us. Brings me to the second point. Treasure is useless until it is found. Treasure is useless until it is found. Treasure that's buried in the ground, it's good for nothing. Yeah, it's got value, but the value isn't revealed until the finder finds it. It's like this. If uh, picture like Middle East, uh, desert wasteland. You look at desert wasteland, it's like, dude, desert wasteland? Who would want to have property in a desert wasteland until somebody finds oil on that desert wasteland? And they dig and there's oil under it. Now, Previously, that wasteland, it didn't really have value. But now that there's oil in it, the finder of the oil exposes the value. And now that oil can be used, right? It can be used for cars and different forms of energy. But the oil just sitting under the ground, it's not doing anyone any good. This is the same thing in regards to the hidden treasure. Before Christ found us, we were essentially useless. Flip with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. This was the responsive reading that we read, but such a powerful text. I want to reread that because this really, it's a picture of Israel, technically, but the word of God is living and powerful, and this absolutely applies to us today. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4, it says, As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. What is he saying? You were useless. You couldn't even cut your own navel cord. You were just left out there. You couldn't clean yourself. You couldn't wash yourself. You couldn't wrap yourself in swaddling clothes to be comforted. Look what he says in verse 5. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. As we prayed earlier, the Lord um, essentially says the world has abandoned you. No one has come to give you compassion or portray compassion towards you. You were helpless and hopeless and no one in the world was going to help you. So this is what I did. Look at verse six. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew and you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. See, The Lord looked at us as hopeless and desperate, abandoned by the world, and he saw something in each and every one of us. He saw potential. He saw value. 
He said, you got, you can't do anything for yourself in this state but I'm going to come alongside. I'm going to wash you with the water of the word. I'm going to wash you with my blood. I'm going to anoint you with oil. The oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to bear witness of Christ. It empowers us um, to do the work of the ministry. I gave you value. I gave you purpose. I gave you something to live for. And that something was me. See, Jesus saw the potential value in each of us and he paid the price to redeem us. It's first Corinthians chapter six, verse 19 and 20. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He says, don't you realize you're not your own anymore? You were purchased, you were bought at a price. And what was that price? It was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He says it like this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The author of Hebrew writes, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy of the Lord. It it was joy that the Lord experienced in dying on the cross. Like what? How could the Lord have joy dying on the cross? Because he was thinking about you. He was thinking about each of us. The pain in that moment was only temporary, but he was going to spend eternity with each and every one of us. So it was worth the price. He paid the price, but he didn't just pay the price for each of us. As we see in this parable, he purchased the whole field. Field's a picture of the world. He paid the price for the entire world, right? It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He didn't just pay the price for us. He paid the price for the entire world. Well, why would Jesus have to pay the price for the entire world? What does that mean? Why would Jesus need to pay the price for something that he created? Isn't the world Jesus is already? Isn't it to him to, to, to claim this thing? Doesn't he have authority and a power over this world? Follow me. It's Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus had to pay the price for the entire world. <clears throat> now, those of you that have studied Revelation um, know that this goes pretty deep, but... Um, <clears throat> I want to go over it briefly because it's important. Revelation chapter five, verse one says, and I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Okay. John speaking, he sees a scroll and this scroll is unique. Okay. He says it's written on the inside and on the outside. Now, Typically, a scroll uh, in the ancient world, it was written on papyrus, okay? One side of it was soft, so it was easy to write on, and the other side, the back side, was hard, so people usually wouldn't write on the back side. Uh, on top of that, they didn't really want you reading what was on the back side. You wouldn't, like, you give somebody a letter in an envelope, right? You don't just, like, hey, will you give this to my friend, and it's like an open letter? It's like you're just tempting them to read it, Right? So they would take uh, the scroll and they would seal it. Now, this is a specific scroll that John's speaking of right now. See, a scroll that was written on the inside and on the outside was typically a title deed. This is what would happen. So maybe you purchased a property, um, a farm or whatever, and you had a bad harvest. You couldn't make enough money to pay your mortgage, if you will. So you basically had to give over your land, say, back to the bank. Your house was foreclosed on, so the bank owns your house now. Picture that, okay, because it's more common for us. Um, so on this scroll, you had the title deed, okay? This is the owner of this house, but they would fold the scroll over and on the outside they would write what needed to happen, the price that needed to be paid to gain the property back. Okay, so these are these are 
the things that you need to do on the outside to gain your property back. This is the price it's going to cost you, say a certain amount of money or crops um, plus interest. And if you pay this, then we'll give you your title deed back. Follow me. Okay, look at this. Revelation chapter five, verse one. This is a picture of the title deed to the earth. Title deed to the earth. When God created Adam, he gave him dominion over the entire earth, including the animals. Adam essentially had the title deed to the earth. He had dominion over the entire earth. Okay, but what happened? When Adam was tempted in the garden along with Eve, they gave in to who? The serpent. Okay, follow me. Romans chapter 6 verse 16. Adam, he knowingly rebelled against God and he essentially gave the title deed of the earth over to Satan. Look, Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Paul's saying, who you obey, you make yourself a slave to that thing, whether it's sin or whether it's righteousness. Adam, he chose to be obedient to to Satan, fell into sin. He made himself essentially a slave to Satan. Now Satan gets the title deed to the earth. Adam gave up his dominion to Satan. Like what? Really? That's why he's called the God of this world. He has authority over this world on a certain capacity. Um, in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four, Satan's referred to as the God of this world. Uh, flip with me to Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four. Verse six. This is when um, Satan is tempting Jesus while Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. Look what it says in verse six specifically. And the devil said to him, all this authority, or look at five, give it a little context. Then the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority, I will give you. He's speaking to Jesus and their glory for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Jesus did not say, no, Satan, you don't have authority over the kingdoms of the earth. He didn't deny what Satan said because what Satan said was true. He's the God of this world. He has a certain amount of authority. Okay, he's essentially given, Revelation 5, the uh, title deed to the earth. Now pick it back up with me in Revelation chapter 5. Follow me. This is why this is such a powerful passage. If we don't understand those things, we don't grasp how important it is, the culture and the context and what is said here in verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. What is he saying? Nobody could pay the price to open the seals, to uh, open the seals, to unveil the scroll. He couldn't find anyone in heaven or on earth. Verse five, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Only Jesus had the ability, had the power, had the integrity, had the righteousness to do what it took to pay the price to redeem not just the individual believer, but the world in general. He gained back the title deed to the earth when he paid the price for the title deed on the cross. So he bought back the entire world for the sake of his treasure, which is his people. Not just for people in general, but also for you specifically. Flip with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 
First Peter chapter one, verse 18 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. See, Jesus, it was always his plan to redeem not just the world, but you, as Peter writes, the individual believer. It was his plan all along. And he did that by paying the price with his blood as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This was the only being, Jesus Christ, that was able to pay the price to redeem not just the world, but the individual believer as well. Now remember, this treasure is Israel specifically, okay? But it parallels to God's people generally. I want to take a moment and talk about Israel specifically, because that's what this parable is about. See, Israel is Jesus's special treasure, and he desperately wants her back. We even see evidence of this in his ministry. If you look at Luke, I know we're all over the place today. Verse 34, he looks at out at Jerusalem and look what he says. Verse 34, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wondered, wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is looking out to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the place where the temple was built and placed. And he looks at the people and he says, how long I've wanted to gather you. Now, remember, this isn't just Jesus speaking as a man 30 years old and saying, my whole life I've wanted to gather you. No, he's saying, for, for since you, we chose you, since me, God the Father, um, and the Holy Spirit chose you and you've rebelled against us. We've longed to gather you and bring you together as a nation, not just as a nation, but to your rightful king. But you continued to rebel. You continued to stone the prophets that were delivering this message. And it's interesting in this second part, verse 35, it says, see your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's Jesus speaking about? This is a prophecy about 30 to 40 years later in 70 AD, the house was left desolate in 70 AD. Rome destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. And what came from that was the Jewish nation, they scattered. Okay, they scattered everywhere. They went everywhere. This is a prophecy that Jesus is proclaiming, not just here, but other areas of scripture. So the nation of Israel were scattered for hundreds of years. And then on May 14th, 1948, after World War II, the nation of Israel was gathered together again as a nation. But listen to what I said. They were gathered as a nation, but they're yet to be gathered for salvation. Okay, they're gathered as a nation now. They will be gathered for salvation later. See, though they're scattered with sheep that don't have a shepherd, that doesn't mean that they're not still God's special hidden treasure. Which brings me to the third point. Israel is still God's treasure. Israel is still God's treasure. Jesus still loves the nation of Israel. He died for them too. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, we see the time period summarized by Jesus of the tribulation and when the nation of Israel will be gathered, okay? 
Um, he talks about them being scattered earlier in the chapter, but I just want to look at verse 31 because we have still a little bit to get through. <clears throat> look at verse 31. It says, this is after the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now the elect here are believed to be the Jewish people. The elect of Israel will be gathered for salvation at the end of the tribulation. We see in Zechariah chapter 13 and Zechariah chapter 14 that two-thirds of the Jews will be cut off. They'll die during the tribulation period. And then at the end of the tribulation, in Zechariah 14, when Jesus comes and stands on the Mount of Olives, he's going to gather his elect. He's going to gather that remnant of Israel that was left. Israel is still God's chosen people. See, in fact, he gave them the opportunity to receive salvation first. Right? Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. <clears throat> for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Jesus' ministry was to the Jew. Yes, he engaged in and ministered to a few Gentiles along the way, but his primary ministry was to the Jews. The Jews were offered salvation first. It wouldn't really be offered to the Gentiles until they rejected their king, they rejected the gospel, they rejected their Messiah. And then the disciples, it was their mission to get the gospel across to the Gentiles. See, God had promises for Israel before he had really promises for the Gentiles. We see promises for the Gentiles in the Old Testament, but we see so many specific promises for the Jewish people in the Old Testament first because they were offered salvation first. And essentially we benefit from the promises that were made to Israel. Um, <clears throat> there's a really bad doctrine that's gone around for the last few hundred years and it's called replacement theory. Uh, basically what it says is that the promises to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel are null and void. They don't apply anymore. God's going to break that promise. And now the church replaces Israel. And now all the promises that were promised to the Jewish people, salvation and all these different things are only given to the church, but they're not given to the Jewish people. Flip with me to Romans chapter 11. This chapter, um, in my opinion, um, you can read the whole chapter for yourself. It basically uh, destroys replacement theory. But I want you to look at something, how we benefit from the promises that were made to Israel. Look at verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root, we partake in the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do not boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. We were grafted in. Now we get to um, experience all the promises that God made to the Jewish people. Just because we get to experience the promises God made to the Jewish people doesn't mean that the promises are no longer for the Jewish people. Look what he says in verse 23. And they also, speaking of the Jews, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. So if they just believe, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul's making the argument, hey, the promises still apply to the Jew. Now, there's going to be many Jews that are blind and never accept Jesus, but we know it's promised throughout Scripture that there's always going to be a remnant of the Jew that God saves. And we see this throughout Scripture. If you look at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20, I told you we got a lot, <clears throat> a lot today. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20 
It's just one example of scripture and it's all over the New Testament. And he even mentions it in Romans 11 earlier in the text. In Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20, it says, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on whom who de- him who defeated them. Okay, speaking of the Assyrian exile. But will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. Throughout scripture, we see God saves a remnant. What does that mean? He saves a small portion of the people. He's always going to save a small portion of the Israelites because they're his chosen people. They're his hidden treasure. There's a uh, a story a few hundred years ago. Um, King Louis of France approached Blaise Pascal and he said, he said, Blaise, I want you to give me proof of the supernatural. Why do you believe in God? I want you to give me proof of the supernatural. You know what the, you know what Blaise said? He said, the Jew, my majesty, the Jew. The Jewish people was the reason that Blaise was a Christian, but that was the reason that he gave them for believing in God, the Jew. Why? Because they shouldn't exist as a people. They should have been dead long ago. No nation in history has faced the persecution, the dispersion, and the destruction as much as the nation of Israel and still survived as a nation. Mark Twain, a famous American writer. Raise your hand if you know Mark Twain. I don't really care if you know Mark Twain. I'm just making sure you're awake still. (laughs) Mark Twain. He's, uh, he was a self-proclaimed agnostic and skeptic. So he's not even a believer, but look at what he says about the Jews. I love this quote. Don't try to write it down because it's try to, kind of long. You can try. <laughs> the Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and Roman followed, made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakness of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal, but the Jew... All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret to his immortality? Mark Twain, an unbeliever, looking at the Jewish people, recognizing the same thing. Dude, they've outlasted world powers, Egypt, Babylon, Rome, Greece, Assyria, all these different world powers, and yet they still exist. What is the secret to their immortality? God's promises They're God's hidden treasure. He'll always have a special place in his heart for them. If you wanted to get rid of them, you would have got rid of them a long time ago. But guess what? He's not going to. They're going to be here till the end of the age. They're still God's hidden treasure. Next parable, Matthew chapter 13, verse 45 and 46. We'll go through this one a little faster. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, we see this merchant here is Jesus. The pearl that he's speaking of is a picture of the individual believer or the church body as a whole. Okay, see... Um, pearls are made from oysters or mussels, okay? They're shellfish. Shellfish, we know, to Jewish people, they're unclean, okay? So this isn't speaking of the Jewish people. As well, the sea throughout the Bible is a picture of what? The Gentile nations, okay? We see that throughout the Bible. I'm not going to give you a bunch of scripture because it'll just take more time. Just trust me on that. You can look into it to yourself later. Okay, so this pearl of great price, we have to really 
unpack and understand this, uh, the process of making pearls to understand this parable. Okay, so a pearl is made when an oyster or a mussel um, gets a piece of dirt in its mouth and it irritates him. It irritates its mouth, okay? So this piece of dirt, what the oyster does to protect itself is it begins to cover it with something called knacker or mother pearl is another name for knacker. So what happens is you got this piece of dirt and it really covers it essentially with its life source. And as the oyster or mussel covers this piece of dirt, it starts to get smooth. It starts to become a pearl and it becomes more and more beautiful. In fact, the longer that it sits in the oyster's mouth, the bigger, more robust and more beautiful the pearl becomes. Think about this now, Jesus. We are dirt, we are filth, we are an irritant, if you will, in this world until Jesus gets so irritated with us. I'm just, follow me here, I'm kind of joking, but serious. He gets so irritated with us that the only hope they got is if I cover them with my life source, if I cover them with my blood. The only hope for them is if I begin to mold and shape and fashion them into a beautiful, precious pearl, okay? Brings me to the fourth point. Pearls are precious. Pearls are precious. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Paul writes, Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world. Super encouraging, right? We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. We were the filth of the world. We were the off-scouring of all things. We were that irritating piece of dirt in the oyster until Jesus poured out his blood on us, right? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things have passed... All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're a new creation in Christ. We were the filth of the earth. Just as Adam was the dust of the earth. He was nothing. He was useless until God breathed life into him. Same picture of the Pearl of Great Price. We were the filth in the oyster's mouth until he poured out his blood on us and gave us value, okay? Pearls, they're so valuable that the good merchant would give up everything. His kingdom, his glory, his position, his title. He'd give up everything for just one pearl. I almost said pork, because I'm getting ready to say that. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And this is where we're going to close <clears throat> in like 10 minutes. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. <clears throat> Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Think about this. He became poor so that we could become rich in him. Though the Lord owned everything, all things were created through him and for him, he chose to leave his heavenly abode and come to earth as a man. But we got to think about this even deeper. He didn't just choose to come as a man and be a king like David or like Solomon. His poverty was so severe, he came to be a poor man. He came to be a poor man, not just even an average man. He came to be a poor man. That's how much he was willing to give up. When you look at scripture, Jesus is constantly borrowing from men. I'll just give you a few things. A place to be born. That wasn't his place. A place to lay his head. A boat to cross Galilee, <clears throat> a donkey for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, a room for the Passover, a tomb to be buried in. He didn't own any of those things. 
He gave up, he could have, but he gave up all of those things. He didn't just become poor in the sense of he's a deity and he comes as a man. No, he came from deity to, yes, fully God, fully man, but a poor man that needed to not only depend on God, but he had to depend on other people. That's crazy. That's the utter picture of humility. Why was he willing to give up all of these things? He was willing to give up all these things because pearls are precious to him, because we have value. He had to give up these things so that we could be rich in him. Do you know how much you're valued by God? Do you know how much you're loved by God? Do you believe that you're loved by God? Do you believe that you're valued by God? Do you believe that God sees something so special in you that he wants to use you to magnify his name in this world? It's not that just that he loves you. Yes, he loves you, but he values you. He sees you as, as something special that he can use in this world. Do you believe that? See, I want you to think about Everything that the Lord forsook for us. He became a poor man. That's how much he loves you. We always look at the cross, which is great, but it wasn't just the cross. Yes, he gave his life on the cross, but he gave up a lot of other things before that. He gave up everything before that. His life was just the last thing. See, he forsook all for us. That's why he asked us to forsake all and follow him. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse 10 says, and this, I give advice. It is to your advantage, not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it. So there are also, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. It's the fifth and final point. Pearls become more beautiful with age. Pearls become more beautiful with age. Listen to what Paul's saying here. What you were doing, Paul was in the church of Corinth the year past. Hey, you were passionate. You had a desire to grow in the things of the Lord. You need to get back there. You need to get back to your first love because he's not done with you yet. Pearls get more beautiful with age. He still has so many things he wants to do in and through you. You might think you're beautiful now, Who thinks they're beautiful? Wow, I love that. People actually raise their hands. Praise God for that. Just seeing if you're paying attention. As beautiful as you are, as a spiritual being right now, he's just scraped the, the surface. It takes years to make precious pearls. It makes, takes years to, to, to make beautiful pearls. This is just the beginning. I don't care if you're eight or you're 80, he's not through with you yet. You can become much more beautiful than you are right now. So what is the encouragement? It's to press on. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter three, verse 12. Philippians chapter three, verse says, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then look what he says in verse 15. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. If you have this mature mind, you would realize that your beauty comes with spiritual maturity. As you continue to press on, as you continue to press toward the goal of the upward prize of God in Christ Jesus, he's maturing you. He's making you more beautiful. Beauty comes with age. The longer the pearl is in the oyster, the more beautiful it becomes, the more valuable it becomes. See, God has made us a new creation, but as time goes on, he's making us into an even more beautiful creation. In closing, if you've lost some of that fire, 
As Paul encouraged this church, do what you were doing a year ago. If you've lost some of that fire, you came to the Lord and you were so passionate about things of God, you wanted to serve in every capacity, any ministry opportunity, you were gung-ho, ready to take advantage of it. I want to encourage you that he still has so much, not just that he wants to do in you, but he wants to do with you. You're valuable to him. As we discussed weeks back, back, we're God's ultimate plan for redemption. You think about that? He sent the disciples out to change the world. He's sending us out to change the world. He sees us as valuable. He doesn't have a backup plan. We're his only plan. There's no like, oh, well, if they don't get it, well, we'll figure something else out. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let's get our brains together because they're not cutting it. No, there is no plan. We're the only plan to get the gospel across to the masses. Now we see in Revelation, there's going to be an angel that flies around and preaches the gospel to everybody. Maybe that's just in case we mess up. I don't know. But we're his ultimate plan right now until the tribulation, okay? Because he values us. He sees us as precious He sees the potential in us. See, think back to what Paul says. What you were doing a year ago, get back there. Desire what you were doing that year ago. Have a readiness, have a hunger for the word. Maybe early in your faith, you were so hungry for transformation and growth and the things of God and you kind of like got complacent and you're like, yeah, I had all this change that happened and then, I don't know, it just kind of kind of just fell off, kind of stopped, kind of slowed down. Did it slow down or did you slow down? See, he has a work that he's trying to complete in us. But as Paul says, you have a responsibility to complete the work too. He's completing the work in you, but you're to work out what he's working in. He wants to show you and reveal to you the value that he sees in you. As any good father would, he desires us to reach our full potential. He knows what we can take. He knows what we can handle. He knows what we're going to become far more than we do. So what do we do? We press on, we press in, we continue to do those things. Maybe he asked us to do something a year ago and we started doing it, but then we stopped. Maybe he told us to stop doing something a year ago and we stopped, but then we started again. There's something that he wants each of us to continue and something that he wants each of us to stop. Now, I don't know what that thing is for you. I have some ideas about what those things are for me. But nevertheless, he asks us to do certain things and not do other things because he wants us to reach our full potential. We might be little baby pearls right now, but he wants us to become big, bold, glamorous, beautiful pearls. And he's going to complete the work, but he asks us to come and work alongside him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us, God, and your your value of us, Lord. You see us as valuable. It's so crazy. We know you don't need us, God. We see the types of people that you choose in this world, and they're weak, despised, abased, foolish, and we know we're those people. God, but nevertheless, your spirit has the power to make the foolish wise and the weak strong. And Jesus, we pray that as you're working in us, God, we would work out what you're working in. Lord, that we would just consider what you did um, because of the love you have for us and the value that you see in us. And Lord, you would give us the strength by your spirit to reach our potential, our full potential as children of God. In your name, amen.